Utopia and the Ideas of Liberty. Uh, our hashtag for, for tonight is, as always, Cato Digital. Please use it to tweet your questions, particularly for our online audience. And I encourage all of you to continue the conversation online on Twitter and on Instagram using that hashtag. Those of you here in our studio audience can also use our Snapchat geofilter if you're on Snapchat. <laughs> so six months ago today, on December 14th, 2017, the FCC issued a controversial vote repealing the 2015 Open Internet Order, um, which was a 2015 Obama-era regulation um, that is more colloquially known as net neutrality. Then this Monday, the Restoring Internet Freedom Order uh, came into play. So right here next to me on stage tonight, we have the FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, a former antitrust attorney who came to the FP FCC promising to cut FCC regulation with a weed whacker and saying net neutrality's days were numbered. You can find him on Twitter as at Ajit Pai. So let's start out or with... Or actually, Ajit Pai FCC. Oh, Ajit Pai FCC. The, uh, I'm sorry yeah, about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, let's start out with the big question. The sure. term net neutrality was first coined in 2003 by Professor Tim Wu. Yeah. Um, but in the last 15 years, it's been used in many different ways to describe many different things. Uh, most recently, as we discussed, the 2015 Obama-era regulations, which many of the original net neutrality supporters didn't actually support. Uh, so when we talk about net neutrality, what is it we're talking about? Is it actually the end of the internet? <laughs> uh, that's an important foundational question. And uh, before I get to it, though, I want to thank you, Kat, and to thank Cato uh, for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I Absolutely. very much uh, value the advocacy that uh, Cato has injected into our public discourse, in particular when it comes to communications issues. Thanks as well for being the first person in the six years that I've been at the FCC to pronounce my first name correctly. <laughs> um, <laughs> To all the South Indians out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, uh, um, I think net neutrality is, I've called it one of the most seductive marketing slogans of all time because it essentially means whatever you want it to mean, and it's very difficult to argue against. I mean, who could be against neutrality? Right. Um, it originally, long ago, over a decade ago, was meant to ca capture long ago, over a decade ago, a bottleneck should be, uh, should be regulated. Over time, it's morphed into a notion of you know, all traffic should be created equally, hmm. but everybody has their own uh, notion of what it means. Ultimately, the, the question is one of government control. How do you think the government should regulate this online platform? That is essentially what the debate has been about. And the 2015 right. rules, I would argue, have nothing to do with net neutrality in the sense that uh, it didn't, wasn't necessary to preserve a free and open internet. We had a free and open internet prior to 2015 under the uh, framework that started under President Clinton in 1996. Right, exactly. If this was going to end the internet, how come we didn't have internet before 2015? Correctly. And I, I, and I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the fear-mongering that uh, took place in the lead up to 20, uh, the 2017 vote on December 14th uh, was misplaced. You know, on June 11th, these rules, the repeal of those rules went into effect. The internet still works, presumably. People are tweeting, posting on Instagram, Snapchat, and the rest. And so I think going forward, I think people recognize that the free and open internet is something that all of us cherish. These utility-style regulations that were imposed in the name of net neutrality are something else entirely. So I think there's this idea that the internet was very neutral, but then in recent times, large ISPs and platforms like Google and Facebook have sort of gained control of the internet, and it's no longer this sort of even playing ground, and that's why these rules need to be imposed. Could you respond to that a little bit? I think it's an interesting question. It's one that a number of different agencies in the executive branch are wrestling with, as well as members of Congress. And some of the recent revelations about you know, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook are uh, you know, raising these issues in the context of privacy and the like. Uh, you know, the size of these platforms and the control they have and you know, how they monetize uh, people's personal information and the like. Um, from my perspective, I view it in two different ways. First and foremost is the FCC's role. Our role for, is primarily to make sure that the infrastructure is there, you know, to extend what I call digital opportunity to all Americans. And that involves setting the regulatory framework that is necessary for everybody to get access to the internet and to promote more competition. Ultimately, I'm confident that that is consumers' number one concern about the internet. It's not that their internet service provider has been blocking access to lawful content. It's that they don't have access at all, or there's insufficient competition. I hear that all the time. I only have one ISP to mm -hmm. choose from. 
And so my argument to them is, well, let's work together. You know, here are some of the FCC's initiatives you know, designed to address that problem. Uh, but the second question is with respect to uh, the dominance of certain platforms, uh, right. whether it's the network or uh, content providers like Google and Facebook and the like. And that is a question, I think, more for the antitrust and competition authorities at the you know, Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, respectively. If a particular market uh, for a product or service is concentrated, then well, let's have a conversation about that. But it seems to me preemptive regulation of the FCC of every single company in the internet economy whether it's a big company that we all know or a small company like Paladin Wireless in Royston, Georgia. They don't seem like an anti-competitive monopolist to me that has market dominance vis-a-vis -vis Google, but yeah, that's just me, I suppose. So. And Well, and that's true. A lot of the smaller ISPs are the ones that are opposing the 2015 rule. Absolutely, and these are the companies that are critical to providing access in rural areas where the business case is hard enough as it is to you know, build out these networks mm -hmm. and to providing more competition, especially in urban areas. You know, I visited a company called Rocket Fiber in Detroit. They were dissatisfied with the service that was being provided by some of the bigger players, and uh, they decided to build their own fiber network to compete with the big guys. But what they found was that they had a lot of regulatory roadblocks, getting access to the utility poles in mm -hmm. parts of Detroit, getting access to the conduit, the pipes that were in, under the ground. That was really hard for them. So those are the regulatory barriers that were standing in their way. And additionally, these heavy-handed regulations that were designed in 1934 to regulate Ma Bell were an ill fit for that kind of company. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're struggling to you know, raise the capital and build the case for deployment. You're treating them as if they were the dominant monopolist just doesn't make a lot of sense. That's actually one of the things that really interests me about the way in which net neutrality as a concept has changed over time, uh, where in 2015, all of a sudden, you see this idea that we're going to take the internet, we're going to make it into a utility, regulate it as a utility, right. and somehow that's going to bring more competition than if you, uh, the internet is treated as an internet service provider, right, as an information provider. And this is the argument I've consistently tried to make. Think about the utilities that are involved in your life. How innovative are they? How fast moving are they? How often do they introduce new products and services? I mean, have you ever said to yourself, man, my water company just came out with a killer product in 2017, <laughs> or you know, my electric company is delivering you know, ever more electricity. And the thing I argue, in addition to that, the fact that these are slow moving utilities, we don't want the, EU, the internet to operate like your DMV. In addition to that, the internet is not a utility in the sense that its use is not generally static over time. I and mean, year over year, we consume roughly the same amount of water, the same amount of electricity and the like. Internet traffic is going up like this exponentially. And it's only going to increase even further once we, you know, now that we're in the dawn of the internet of things. Right, uh, once more we get people more, using you know, internet, everything's online, you know, we're streaming. Absolutely, with you know, dawn of 5G, wireless connectivity, we're talking about virtual and augmented reality, you know, industrial IoT applications and the like. I mean, just, it's going to go up tremendously. You can't have all that increased internet traffic without networks to carry that traffic. You want smart networks, not dumb pipes. And the only way to do that is to have a regulatory framework that is more market-based, that recognizes that companies don't have to raise capital, they don't have to hire teams to build these networks, and consumers don't have to be served with internet access. And so we need to recognize that. And that's because you're moving away from the fiber model to a more satellite model with the 5G? To me, we're technologically neutral. So technological neutrality is pathways for Absolutely. So if you look at all of our different programs, you know, no one pays attention to this, but we have a multi-billion dollar program that Congress has told us to institute called the Universal Service Fund. Under my leadership, we've opened that up to competition, not just from the small rural telephone companies, but from electric utilities and cable companies and satellite companies and wireless and others. We want all of them to compete to provide more internet access and competition. Ultimately, the government shouldn't put its thumb on the scale in favor of one technology or sector of the economy. We should open it up to competition. That's the best way to ensure that consumers are, are, are vindicated in terms of what they're concerned about in the internet economy. Absolutely. So on that note, let's uh, let's discuss your new rule that came into sure. effect on Monday, the um, Restoring Internet Freedom Order. So that essentially moved ISPs or internet service providers from Title II regulations, where they're being regulated as utilities under the FCC, to being regulated under Title I. Uh, where they're regulated as information providers under, I believe, the, FT, the Federal Trade Commission? Correct. Uh, can you explain that a little bit and how, how that works? Sure. So uh, this is consistent with the regulations that applied to the Internet from 1996, starting under President Clinton's time, all the way through the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the first six years of the Obama administration. And under that framework, uh, Internet service providers were considered information service providers. And so we had a more light-touch approach, so to speak, mm -hmm 
uh, we didn't have impose these utility style regulations on them. Uh, we took targeted action against any anti-competitive conduct that we saw in the marketplace and otherwise let the market develop organically. Title II is very different. It was designed, as I said, in 1934 to regulate utilities and it involves you know, rate regulation and other regulatory requirements that are much more onerous. And so we've returned to the light touch framework that served us pretty well for 20 years. You know, it gave us $1.5 trillion of network investment. Right. Companies like Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and Google under this framework grew from small startups to global giants and consumers are benefiting in, in unparalleled ways. I mean, I know it's hard to remember because we live in the day to day, but 22 years ago when this light touch framework was adopted, we were talking about AOL CD-ROMs being sent in the mail and that modem with that little screech, you know, everyone, uh, those of a certain age can remember it and, uh, you know, the, the killer application was email and now we're talking about, you know, gigabit fiber and you know, other advanced applications that were inconceivable a, a generation ago. That's because the United States, uniquely, I would argue, decided to take a very proactive, forward-thinking view of regulation. We were not going to regulate this like the water company or electric company. The results of that speak for themselves, and so going forward, consumers are going to be protected under our new framework. Number one, at the FCC, we have a robust transparency rule. Every single internet service provider, yeah, they have to disclose various business practices to inform consumers and startups alike about what uh, these practices are. And number two, at the Federal Trade Commission, we've now empowered the Federal Trade Commission once again to take action against any anti-competitive conduct. Uh, recently, Joe Simons, the new chairman of the FTC, testified alongside me before the Senate, and he said we will take aggressive action if we see any unfair or deceptive trade practice, which is the FTC's uh, bailiwick, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we find. That's really broad authority, and historically, the FTC has been a great cop on the beat. Going forward, they will be as well, as will we. Absolutely. So let's let's go back to that transparency rule a little bit. So this is a, this transparency rule, I believe, is something you push through yourself as part of your not you, but as part of your tenure, right? Yeah. And it seems to me as if that transparency is actually a big part of the reason why this debate is so huge, where previous uh, rulemaking processes haven't gotten as much attention. Do you think that that's true? I think it is. I mean, I think back in 2015, when these uh, the original rules were promulgated. One of the concerns I expressed is, look, this is a three, at the time, it was a 337-page plan, and my predecessor didn't allow the public to see it. Right. And it seems to me, if this is affecting a major component of the economy, of the internet, everyone should be able to see what is, in, uh, what is in the details. Only weeks after the FCC actually voted in 2015 were you, the American public, allowed to see what was in the text of the order. This time it was different. Three weeks in advance of the FCC's vote, I published for everyone to see, along with an op-ed describing the, this order, you know, what the order was all about. You may like it, you may hate it, but at least you were able to see what it was that we were doing. And so we had a much more open and transparent process. And I've done that for all of our major initiatives. Every month by law, the FCC is supposed to have a, a vote on the different proposals and orders uh, that are set by the chairman. For the first time in 84 years, 83 years at the time, uh, when I came into my office, it came into office in my second week, I said, we're going to publish all of these things well in advance of the vote so everyone can see what it is we're doing. When? To me, that's just a matter of good government. I think most people would be shocked to think that an agency that regulates one-sixth of the overall economy votes first and lets the public know what they're doing afterward. Absolutely. Do you think that, um, do you, have you gotten that kind of response on anything else that you voted on, or has it been really focused on the net neutrality? I, I think it's been very positive overall. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, the, the FCC, I mean, net neutrality is sort of a unique issue, but the, the bread and butter work that we do is very much in the weeds. It's, you know, how does 47 CFR part 32.666 you know, affect our, you know, regulate our, our business models and that, that kind of thing. So people really need to know in advance what it is you're proposing to do, because otherwise they can't give you meaningful feedback back on it. And so you know, before I instituted these reforms, back before I became chairman, we would have these weird meetings where you know, parties would come in and say, well, we're really concerned or we're really happy with what we think the FCC might be doing, but we can't really tell you why. And so now going forward, uh, you know, on things like telemedicine, we just got a third vote, to, uh, for example, on my proposal to improve uh, the uh, rural healthcare program that we have that provides subsidies to get a telemedicine in rural areas. I mean, that's something I think has bipartisan support across the board. Our rural broadband efforts have been tremendous. Same thing with getting Spectrum into the marketplace to allow U the U.S. to maintain leadership in 5G. And these are the kinds of things that I think have broad bipartisan support, and I think our being open with the public about what it is we're doing is a part of that. Absolutely, but as you mentioned, a lot of this work really is in the weeds, and uh, honestly, I think net neutrality is as well. It is. Absolutely. Uh, it's a little strange that we've had so many people in the public care so passionately about what is really just a regulatory rule. Yes. So 
I wonder, you know, celebrities seem to have played a pretty big role in this debate. I think a lot of Americans learned about net neutrality from John Oliver. Um, yes, indeed. We've all seen the video. <laughs> um, Going after my mug, that was a, oh. I mean, take shots, whatever mug. shots you want to take at me, it. the mug is an innocent party. It's sort of collateral damage in this whole debate. I just feel, oh, man. Right. Uh, Mark Ruffalo. Yes. Uh, to yeah. Better known, perhaps, as the Incredible Hulk, a Hulk from the Avengers. <laughs> Freudian sure slip there, I think, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he tweeted that taking away net neutrality is the authoritarian dream. Yes, uh, I'm yeah. sure he's, of course, very adept in tech regulation. Well, so, so I mean, I, I know if there's one thing you know about authoritarians, they love deregulation and getting the government out of uh, marketplaces. So. Yeah, so um, how do you think that that sort of like celebrity push behind this has impacted the conversation? I mean, obviously, you know, the usual caveat, they have the right to say whatever they want to say. It's part of the public discourse, yada, course, yada, yada. Yeah. But on the other hand, injecting that kind of misinformation into the debate is not helpful at all. I mean, a lot of these folks were proclaiming or proposed decision, the end of the internet as we know it. And I cannot tell you how many times I heard that. Am I really going to have to pay $5 to be able to tweet? Is the internet really going to end on you know, June 11th? Uh, you know, all these tweets you know, with one word uh, per line, you know, this is how the internet's going to work. It's, uh, right. all, I mean, yeah, are you gonna have to pay for every individual website you load? All absolutely, you know, so, you know, the, and there's only so much debunking that can happen. The Washington Post fact checker gave that one word uh, per line tweet, uh, three Pinocchios. And you know, people just uh, debunked the whole Portugal analogy. You know, Portugal has net neutrality regulations. This has nothing to do with that, you know, the, the bundled package that people were worried about. Obviously, judging from my own Twitter feed and the response I get to it, people are not paying $5 per tweet, because I can assure you they'd be a little more judicious in uh, some of the stuff they say if it was actually costing them money. And so I think a lot of the, a lot of the debate, unfortunately, and not, not limited to the celebrities, but including them, has just been focused on you know, something other than the facts. And I think you know, the fact that a lot of people were proclaiming this, the end of the internet, as we did. In fact, I actually brought, I had anticipation you might ask that question. So this is actually one of the fundraising pitches that has been going out from one of the groups that has been centrally involved in this. So they talk about this week, right? Uh, this, this week, and uh, yeah, someone helpfully signed me up for their spam list, so I get these things. And so it, it says, you know, talking about how net neutrality is the end of the world, life is going to end, Ajit is evil, you know, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, the PS is the best part. Don't panic. The internet isn't going to come to a crashing halt today, but this is still really serious. Want to help us win the fight ahead? Chip in $5 now. And so, like, to me, they're not interested in finding a solution to the problem that we all agree on, which is a lack of access in some areas or insufficient competition. They're focused on using this as a political cudgel. And look, I get that. I mean, this is all public policy debates are about, you know, arguing about you know, po uh, right. political positions and the like. But to me, at least, this shouldn't be a political issue. This wasn't a political issue when you know, Chairman Hunt and Chairman Kennard were wrestling with these problems in the Clinton administration. This was not a political issue for many, many years. And so I'm hopeful that this bipartisan tradition of you know, finding out the, fig figuring out the right way to uh, calibrate our regulations is something that will return and that, you know, hoping against hope anyway, that rational discourse will prevail. But this has been more than just a political issue for you. This has been a deeply personal issue. After the uh, repeal vote in December, you received hundreds of thousands of emails, hate mail. You had folks picketing your house. Your family was targeted. You had death threats. You had to cancel uh, public appearances. I believe you were called Hitler. Um, I think, do you really want to be the man who's responsible for making America right North here, Korea? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, do you really want to be the man responsible for making America North Korea? Um, <laughs> is that real? I, this is real. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I looked him up. Um, and that's, yeah. yeah, there's some there's some really terrible things here. A lot of them were very racist. There's a lot of racist memes. Uh, you several people saying you should be deported. Back, back to, to Buffalo, New York, where I was born. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, I love Buffalo, but you know, it's a little cold for me. But yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is all about a regulation. Again, this is not. This is not something you're not going out doing some horrible thing. I, at least I don't think so. I mean, how do you respond to that? Why do you think that you got this kind of response? I think part of it is that we have a, an overall toxic political environment. That we live in a time when politics is essentially tribal, and depending on the partisan affiliation that one happens to hold, uh, people are going to react to that positively or negatively. I think part of it is also that a lot of people rely on the internet increasingly in their lives. And so when they hear on a very high level 
that's going to end, they become very concerned about that naturally, and I would too if the internet was indeed going to end, but it's not, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it is also, frankly, uh, you know, politicians grandstanding. I mean, a number of different elected officials have called us un-American or evil. You know, I'm old enough to remember when rhetoric like that was considered un-American and evil. Um, in addition to you know, groups essentially just fundraising off it or using it to gain political advantage. And you know, to me, at least, that's not, uh, that, that's not the work of the FCC. We are not actually a political agency in that sense. We're an independent agency precisely because we've been entrusted by Congress for over eight decades, the responsibility of determining the right regulatory framework to ensure that all Americans have access to communications services. It's a pretty simple mission. And so you know, I, I get it, but on the other hand, I have to say that it's not very, uh, it's not very pleasant to see anybody in public life, especially myself, uh, in, in my <laughs> speaking crassly. I was insulted by some of the comments oh, was, I saw, to be honest, so. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, it's just not, I don't care what part of the government you serve in or what party you belong to, you know, no one should have to face this stuff. And we're all Americans at the end of the day, and it's a pretty steep slope uh, from where we are, have been historically as a country that you know, might disagree about politics, but at the end of the day still call themselves being part of the same team, to a country where we're essentially at civil war with each other when it comes to public policy debates. I really hope that this is not a harbinger of that, because if it is, it's not just me that's going to suffer, it's going to be the entire country. That's not what is American. To, what it means to be an American to me. Not at all, not at all. But I think that on, on that point about the, the political, we're in an increasingly politicized society, and when we start looking at this regulation, you know, in 2015, a Democratic-led, Democrat-led FCC oh. passed the Open Internet Order. 2017, a Republican-led FCC passed the Restoring Internet Freedom Act. These things are, within two years, almost directly oppositional to each other. And, I mean, how do we know that there's not going to be, in another couple of years, another FCC order that's reversing the rule again? That's a good point, and that is precisely why back in 2014, when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit rendered its second decision in validating the FCC's previous rules, I put out a statement in which I said, look, the courts have clearly said that the FCC's decision-making here is legally flawed. The correct solution is to turn to Congress, have mm -hmm. Congress update the rules of the road to meet, match the digital era. The last time Congress pronounced judgment on these issues was 1996, 22 years ago. I, I think the right solution here is for Congress. That's changed a little since then. A tiny bit. I mean, as much as we love you know, Lycos and Alta Vista and all the rest, I mean, we've moved on a little bit since then. And so I think it would be great if Congress would simply put on the page what I think everybody agrees on. I mean, nobody wants blocking of access to lawful traffic. No one wants throttling, anti-competitive arrangements and, and the like. We actually all agree on the important values that undergird uh, free and open internet. What we might not agree on is utility-style regulation under Title II. So let's have Congress just put on the page, this is what mm -hmm. we want the rules to be, this is what we want the FCC to do, and then we can move on to the areas where I think everybody would agree on it. Let's get more internet access out there and more competition, empower every American to take charge of his or her digital future. Absolutely, and I think actually your repeal vote did end up uh, kind of spurring some sort of legislative action on the Senate Democrats have been pushing for right. net neutrality regulations. Right, uh, yeah, through the Congressional Review Act, mm -hmm. and uh, now you know, elected officials will have to make a decision. I ultimately think that uh, reason will prevail and we'll be able to restore this light touch approach that we've had that served us so well uh, for many years. I, I hope so as well, but uh, what about the, um, I believe a couple states tried to pursue their own net neutrality programs. California, uh, was it Oregon? Uh, yeah, a number of different states, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, state, there, there's some question about whether or not that's legal. Can you speak to that? Sure, so uh, it has been a bedrock principle at the FCC for many, many years, well before I became chairman, that internet access is inherently an interstate service. If I send you an email right now, assuming the internet still works, uh, that it would, you know, chances are it would actually traverse uh, state boundaries or district state boundaries. That is an interstate service, and so it follows from that principle that it should be regulated by the federal government. That's the standard law. Right. It also follows from that that any state regulation or uh, order that is in conflict with that overall federal deregulatory approach that we have adopted uh, is preempted. That's what we said in the 2017 order that we just mm -hmm. issued. 
And so it's going to be up to uh, you know, courts uh, to figure out how to sort these things out. But going forward, I think what we don't want is a patchwork in which the federal government has one set of rules, any number of states have different rules, even you know, localities that they choose to get into this have a different bite of the regulatory apple. I think that's a recipe for chaos, and it, it's better to have a single consistent uh, federal regulatory scheme. So you've been perhaps somewhat ironically called uh, the libertarian regulator. Yes. Um, how does libertarian philosophy fit into your views on net neutrality or your work with the FCC at large? It's not easy given uh, the moniker of being you know, the Hitler of the 21st century, but <laughs> being a yeah, libertarian. Yeah. But, or um, Kim, I guess. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think it does inform, my, my, not just on this issue, but overall my approach to regulation. It seems to me the standard for regulation should always be what is the market failure that we are trying to address and let's pick the most market-oriented way of solving that problem. Uh, similarly, how are these regulations standing in the way of economic opportunity? And is there any way we can modernize our rules to make sure we match the modern marketplace? A lot of the problems the FCC has had over the years, not necessarily in this area, but in many others, is that we are, issue, we are issuing regulations based on laws that were passed in 1934, or 1968, or 1992, or 1996. Uh, those laws capture a snapshot of the marketplace in a moment in time, and that snapshot becomes pretty quickly yellowed with age, especially when we're talking about technologies like the internet. Uh, so how do we modernize our rules within that statutory framework? The older, the, the more out of step our regulations become, the less likely it is that consumers are going to benefit uh, from some of the technologies that will never see the light of day because of those regulations. Right, so. there's, a, there's a fantastic meme that goes around on the internet that I love uh, because I did grow up in the, the dawn of the internet age with AOL and all of that. And, um, when we were young, our parents told us never meet anyone off, never get in a stranger's car, Love never this. meet anyone yeah. from the internet. Right. Now, we literally use our phone to summon strangers from the internet to get in their car. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? Right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah and it it's, is kind it's of a whole different world. There's no way that those rules could possibly predict this kind of environment. Exactly. Um, so, to, to shift things off a little bit, one of your major focuses has been net neutrality, but mm -hmm. you've said that that's part of a much, that's a small part of a much larger plan yes. for rural internet access. Uh, you mentioned that a little bit, but you've been on this major tour, I believe 26 states you've been to recently? Yeah, now up to 28. 28, uh, okay. Yeah. Plus the territories of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So. 30. <laughs> um, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about that and how net neutrality is a part of this. Sure, so uh, to me, our top priority is closing the digital divide, the gap between those who have access to the internet and those who don't. And part of the reason why I travel is to get a sense of what some of the promise of the digital era is in some of these communities. Uh, places like Scottsville, Kentucky, where uh, previously it was one of the lower income parts of Kentucky, part of Allen County. There wasn't a single pediatrician in the entire county of Allen. Uh, but now, thanks to a broadband connection between Allen County Schools and Nashville's, uh, Vanderbilt University's uh, Children's Hospital, they now can do telemedicine. So, you know, people are healthier. And parents don't have to take time off work. They can monitor via an app how the remote visit with the school nurse is going and the like. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool, and teachers can focus on teaching. You know, that is one of the that gives me a lot of hope about you know the future of uh, these some of these communities when they can get internet access. But I've also been to parts of the country that don't have it. You know, I was at the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in Mission, South Dakota, mm -hmm. about a year ago, and I met with a, a tribe that told me uh, the story of a woman who was found dead in her home. Uh, she was clutching her cell phone, and she had dialed 911 38 times, but the call never went through because there she wasn't wireless access. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of gaps that we want to address. And I recognize that this issue in particular will consume a lot of the oxygen. But overall, the digital divide is really where the rubber meets the road for this FCC. So we're doing a lot of stuff in terms of reforming our subsidy programs, modernizing our regulations, working with Congress on bipartisan solutions. Uh, and those are the areas, th that is the area where we're going to make a mark. You know, approving the next generation of satellite constellations, companies like SpaceX that I'm sure people have heard of that right. want to yeah, deploy a lot Right, yeah, this is interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about sure. what you're doing with SpaceX? So, so, so this is the first uh, ever applications that we have approved at the FCC under my leadership uh, for the, the uh, essentially low Earth orbit satellites. So not sing sending up a single satellite way up into space, but hundreds if not thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit 
to beam access back to the Earth at a speed and at a price point that is relatively comparable to what you would get from a terrestrial provider. This could be critical, not just in urban areas where there might not be enough competition, but especially in rural and tribal and remote areas where there might not be access at all, where there might not be a business case for laying fiber, whether it's you know, the permafrost of Alaska or a poorer part of Mississippi, which is sparsely through populated. Through mountains, through woods, yeah. Absolutely, so we've encouraged them to innovate, to invest, and we want the United States to be the, you know, sort of the, the test case for satellite, uh, high-speed satellite broadband. Same thing with wireless companies, too. We're getting Spectrum out there for 5G because we recognize that you know, we, wireless might be the best solution in some cases. And same thing with small fiber providers. I mentioned the case of Rocket Fiber. You're modernizing our pole attachment rules Boring as it sounds, but this is one of the critical cost elements for small fiber competitors to build an alternative to the big guys. That is going to be something that promotes more competition. So it's, not, it's never going to be fast enough. I know people would always like these networks to be built by yesterday, but it, in time, I think people will see the impact of some of these decisions. That's wonderful. Uh, I'd like to make time for everybody to ask questions. I'm sure lots of folks have them, and I've already seen them pouring through on Twitter. Uh, for those of you online, that's uh, hashtag Cato Digital. I am looking and I will ask them. Um, but before I do, uh, I want to ask you my own kind of hardball question. You've got, uh, there's been polls showing that people don't like uh, these net neutrality decisions that you've made. Um, you've certainly seen the impact of people not liking these decisions. Sure. Why do them anyway? Uh, because it's the right thing to do. The, I mean, the right thing to do is always the right thing to do, even when, especially when, it's hard. And part of my being here, doing events, writing op-eds, making speeches, doing visits across the country, is to present the case for a more market-based approach. You're on Twitter. I, I want to say that. You're on Twitter. Not many regulators are. <laughs> yeah, no, I was the first FCC commissioner on Twitter back in 2012. And I remember my colleagues at the time told me, you're crazy. It's <laughs> rule number one. You know, don't, uh, don't go on the interwebs to interact with uh, the trolls. But. Uh, um, <laughs> But look, it's just really a useful forum for me to get the message out and to, you know, to present my arguments in, in a new way. Uh, similarly, I think uh, if you actually ask people uh, you know, what is Title II, I think overwhelmingly people wouldn't understand what it is because it's really archaic. It's you know, Title II of the telecom. I mean, lawyers spend entire careers focused on interpreting right. different sections of Title II and what the impact is on you know, their clients and businesses and the like. And so I think if you explain to people utility-style regulation versus Title I market-based regulation, you might get a very different answer. I mean, for example, uh, you know, Vermontel, VTEL is a company uh, in Vermont that sent us a letter two weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, to me and to members of the Senate Appropriations Committee following a hearing at which I testified. And they said that they were investing $4 million more million in their 4G LTE equipment in Vermont to get rural Vermonters access to uh, wireless services. Hmm. And they said, and it's pretty much a quote, we are more optimistic about the future than we have ever been about providing new services to our customers, and this FCC is the primary reason why. And so these regulatory impacts make a big difference to companies, small companies in particular. And I think if you told customers, well, would you rather have utility-style regulations that impede competition and access, or a more market-based approach that incentivize more infrastructure investment and protect you through you know, various consumer protection and competition authorities, which would you rather have? That's a very different debate. But if you say, do you want the internet to continue as it is, or do you want it to be cut off? That's not a very hard debate, and I don't think it's a really fair fight. Absolutely. Uh, on that note, do we have uh, questions here in the audience? Um, right here, third row. Hi, thank you for the talk. It's interesting to hear this type of perspective. I think that the um, arguments get a little distorted as we keep going down this path. How would you respond to people who um, point to the Time Warner and AT&T merger as the harbinger of vertical monopolies in the end of the internet as we know it? Good That's question. a great question. So to me, that is a classic question of antitrust. I mean, the question is, do you regulate before the fact or after the fact? Regulating before the fact involves the FCC applying sledgehammer-type regulations that apply to every single competitor in the marketplace, regardless of marketplace conditions, regardless of the potential for competitive harm. Uh, whereas antitrust is more of a carefully a tailored approach. You take a look at a transaction like that one or any you know, vertically integrated company, and you try to determine, is this company behaving in any competitive way? That is more a question, I think, for the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission to evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not for the FCC to say. And, and I would note as well, 
in case anyone isn't aware, uh, that transaction did not come before the FCC because there wasn't a transfer of licenses that uh, tr triggered FCC jurisdiction. So you know, we didn't have a say in that transaction, but going forward, you know, I think all of us want a competitive marketplace and it depends on you know, the FCC and the competition authorities uh, to make it so. Oh, no, that was great. I'm sorry. I'm, just, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at uh, Twitter, which is always dangerous, as you know. <laughs> um, so let me ask this. I think this is a good question from Twitter. Uh, Irene Adler asks, what can government do to, to stimulate competition in the interest of extending coverage to offline areas? You kind of touched upon that already, but... Yeah, so one thing we do actually is uh, we subsidize some competitors in parts of the country where the business case simply won't be there. Mm -hmm. We have something called the Mobility Fund. This is a $4.5 billion fund uh, that we set up in my second month in office. Uh, you know, Congress commanded us, you, you, have, you shall collect this money from taxpayers. All of you with a phone bill, you pay something called a universal service fee that goes into a pot. We then distribute that pot. Under my leadership, we've reformed that program to target the subsidies to parts of the country where there is no service, there is, an, uh, there is no private investment. Right. So that's one way we promote more access. The other way is by modernizing our rules to recognize that we need to incentivize much more competition. Uh, so for example, when it comes to uh, getting more uh, wireless towers and small cells and the like out there, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways to promote more build-out is to make sure that we don't make uh, the smaller competitors in particular jump through the same regulatory hoops in terms of environmental uh, reviews and historic preservation reviews uh, that for things like small cells that you would when it comes to big cell towers. And so that is ultimately going to lead to a lot more infrastructure deployment. And uh, I think Congress, generally speaking, has been uh, on the same page in terms of the need to modernize these regulations. What do you think the timeline is for some of this stuff? Uh, it depends. So the, the mobility fund that I described, that auction is going to start in 2019. There are a lot of uh, procedural hoops we have to go through in order to uh, to hold that auction. Fast for government. Uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. It's it's not, But it's not easy for me to, you know, hey, just wait a year and you'll be able to get services. Not a compelling message, of course. Um, but in, in the short term, though, we're, we're modernizing our wireless infrastructure rules. About, uh, was it two months ago, I believe it was, we updated our rules to recognize that certain kinds of wireless infrastructure, small cells in particular, are not a federal undertaking under federal law. And that has a lot of significant consequences, but the upshot of it is that it makes it easier to deploy small cells, the, the, the guts of the 5G networks of the future, so to speak. And that is going to incentivize a lot more deployment in the time to come. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I see a question right over here. Uh, no, you, the one who's looking back. Yes. <laughs> Please wait for the mic so that the folks watching at home can hear. Um, this is probably going to go to my Facebook followers who are very passionate about net neutrality later. So for those of us who, who have actually taken a, a, a telecommunications course or are familiar with telecommunications law or working in it, how can we um, counteract some of this popular support about something that is so misunderstood? Because I, I assumed I was you know, pro-net neutrality until I took telecommunications law and actually understood what it was. Um, and one of the toughest things that I, I have a hard time doing is having a conversation because so far people will literally get up and leave once, because it's, you know, it's nitty gritty. It and, is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly think you did an incredible job of explaining it for people who are non-telecom lawyers, but like what can, what can I do to get people to listen to me about like what, you know, net neutrality actually is and, and fight some of this, you know, misinformation? Well, thanks for the kind words. You're on such a roll. I would encourage you to keep going. But, uh, um, but no, I think it's, it is very hard, and there's no easy answer to it, because if, if you go the legal route and you try to explain, well, look, if you actually look at the statutory terms in Title II versus Title I, the Supreme Court agreed with the FCC back in 2005 that Internet access is, you know, properly, can be properly characterized as an information service. Everyone's eyes glaze over. You're not going to persuade anybody. If you try to make the policy argument, look, this light touch approach is the same one we had from 1996 until 2015. Going forward, we're going to have that same approach. Infrastructure investment is going to go up. The internet isn't going to end. That's a very complicated argument when you're fighting with this guy is going to end the internet. Right? I mean, it's just it's <laughs> right. visceral. It's very and so. I don't have an answer to you other than to say that you have to keep trying to patiently make the case that when you peel back the layers of the onion, what people are really concerned about again is not blocking of content, you know, that doesn't happen willy-nilly on the internet. What does happen, however, is that they don't have enough access or competition. You look at the wireless market as an example. 
Right now, if you don't like your wireless provider, in I think it's 98 or 99% of the country, you can switch to another one of the four national providers, or there are other regional providers as well. Ultimately, the wireless market is competitive, and I think that consumers would say, well, okay, if one company you know, decides to start blocking my access, I'll simply switch. And so, wouldn't it be great if we had much more competition? So let's, you know, that is the ultimate solution to the problems that net neutrality is designed to resolve. Ironically enough, though, these utility-style regulations, or you know, they're monopoly regulations, and monopoly regulations designed to regulate a monopoly are, over time, going to lead us to a monopoly. I mean, the big providers have fleets of lawyers and accountants and others who are going to be able to comply with these regulations. It's the smaller companies that are ultimately going to be squeezed out. And you know, that's why not just in telecom, but in, across a variety of highly regulated industries, you often see some of the bigger providers saying, well, we don't like it, but we can live with it. It's the smaller companies that ultimately are not going to lose out in the marketplace and consumers along with them. So yeah, good luck. Uh, I hope you don't lose too many more friends, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> um, I actually have a question about that because, you know, uh, a lot of these big internet companies, the names we know, Facebook, Google, they supported the 2015 regulation. Right. Whereas it's the smaller companies that were supporting this regulation. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? So there were a lot of Silicon Valley companies that supported the 2015 rules. And um, you, I, obviously, they had different reasons for doing that. But I think uh, one of the things that I found in this position is that uh, companies tend to want to have a regulatory framework that benefits uh, you know, the, uh, their, their own sector, and I understand that, but our goal is to be as technologically neutral as possible, to set a market-based framework that you know, doesn't put the thumb on the scales mm -hmm. for or against any particular company or sector of the industry. And so going, I think privacy is a good example of that. Some of those same companies in 2016, when the FCC came back under the previous administration, mm -hmm and said, we want to heavily regulate uh, broadband uh, companies' privacy practices. Those same companies said, well, let's hold off a little bit, because they were worried all of a sudden that, oh, now these same activists would go to the Federal Trade Commission and want to re regulate them very heavily. And so, Which think, would be very relevant now. <laughs> it's Yes, exactly. So that's a conversation that's, of course, in the news quite a bit. So yeah, ultimately, I would hope that, again, we could all find the common ground on the open internet values that all of us share. And we can leave some of the more tired debates about utility-style regulation behind. Right, yeah, who wants to have your internet regulated like, what, your water company? Yeah, I don't think many consumers would, but... Uh, Especially here in D.C., there's not a whole lot of choice in utilities. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you get your water unleaded. Uh, but, yeah, it's, um, yeah. If you're lucky. Um, so PariahDog119 asks on Twitter. Yeah, I know, uh, I know. That's a hell of a windup. Yeah. <laughs> it is a good question, I promise. Um, with more competition among local ISPs, there wouldn't be any need for any net neutrality type regulations. What steps can the FCC take to encourage competition and counter local and state governments awarding monopolies to big ISPs that stifle competition? A great question. So this is the central problem. And utility-style regulations don't solve that problem of lack of competition that she's talking about. I mean, there are two possible uh, scenarios, right? One scenario is you do have competition. So if one internet service provider uh, does something you don't like, you can switch to the other one. The other scenario is that there is only one uh, provider. And in that case, if that provider is acting in an anti-competitive or anti-consumer way, that is a classic case of competition law and consumer protection law for the Federal Trade Commission to take action on. I mean, that could almost by definition be an unfair or deceptive trade practice, depending on what it was the company was doing. And so you know, to preemptively regulate every single one of the thousands of internet service providers as if they're preemptively anti-competitive monopolists with market power who are you know, doing all these, it doesn't make, you know. Right, which right. those two things right next to each other make it very clear why this is not the case. Right, and so that's why, you know, I think ultimately. Thousands of companies monopoly. Right, exactly, and so that's why I think ultimately the solution is much more competition through market-based reforms, not utility-style regulation, which ironically enough is going to shrink the number of providers until it is like the electric industry where everybody, as far as I know anyway, you pretty much has only one a provider. Same thing like the same with the water company. Fantastic. Thank you, Pariah Dog One Nineteen. Wow. Great question. <laughs> um, I see a question here in plaid shirt. Hello. Thanks for coming today. Hey. My name's Josh. Um, so, I think that you have a room of uh, a lot of people that really agree with you, and I'm one of them. 
Um, back when I was a freshman in college at George Washington, I was pro net neutrality, and then 25 pages later, I was not. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, I came here because of the title, which said net neutrality six months later. Um, and from four years of, like this gentleman in the back said, trying to convince people of the dissenting argument, uh, my question to you, or, or what my hope is you can speak on, is net neutrality six months later. What are the, you know, we argued the proof points for four years. It's going to increase an ISP's ability to invest in the infrastructure. You're going to get more speed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to see websites that aren't able to post certain content. Netflix isn't going to enforce, you know, extra prices on you because they're trying to transfer over costs. Six months later, what do we know? What do we see that's different? What's happened? Can you speak on that? Sure, this is a great question, and it actually uh, calls to my mind an interview I gave on Monday in which uh, the interviewer asked, well, what evidence would you have to have to change your mind? And I gave him my answer, but then I said, you know, let me turn it around. What evidence would be necessary for my critics to finally concede that the internet hasn't, hasn't ended, that these regulations are not a failure? I mean, it's June 11th, on that day it was June 11th. I said on June 12th, on June 13th, on June 14th, December 14th of 2018, what evidence would be necessary for those who are purveying all this fear-mongering about the end of the internet as we know it, what would be necessary for them to concede that they were wrong? And I don't know if they have an answer because there's so many people who are vested in this idea that these particular regulations, they were only existence for three years, were somehow the linchpin of the internet, even though we hadn't had them for 20 years. So if I had to put a crystal ball in you know, going forward six months, I would like to say, that infrastructure investment is going to go up. We're going to continue to have a free and open internet where applications and services are developed in ever more innovative uh, ways. Uh, I, I think the proof is going to be in the pudding. I'm confident that our regulatory framework is the right one. And as I said to that interviewer, I've got 20 years of history on my side. I know that these regulations work. I know that they, produce, they produced an internet economy that made America the envy of the world. And going forward, that's exactly what we can expect. But uh, so now, yeah, those uh, folks who made all these dire predictions, we're going to hold them into account too. Has the internet ended, you know, in the coming days and weeks and months? And if it hasn't, then we are clearly having a much more of a political debate than a policy one. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take one more question from Twitter. Roger Barris asks, when I tell someone that net neutrality is a solution in search of a problem, they tell me that there were problems with Verizon, et cetera, blocking or slowing services. What is the history? So there are scattered examples that are cited in the 2015 uh, FCC order in which they claim that internet service providers acted in any competitive ways. They talk about a case involving Comcast in 2007. They talk about a case uh, involving a small ISP called Madison River back in 2004 or five, I believe it was. There are scattered examples in there. And my argument is, number one, if indeed the internet were so broken that there was a market failure that justified utility-style regulation, mm -hmm. you would have a lot better arguments than, a lot more cases than these scattered examples. I mean, using a small ISP in North Carolina in 2004 to justify utility-style regulation in 2015 seems to, you know, to be the sledgehammer wielded against the flea. Secondly, in a, a number of these different cases, before these net neutrality regulations were imposed in 2015, the issues were resolved, either through private arrangements or through the FCC simply asking questions or the Federal Trade Commission taking action. I mean, there's a throttling case, for example, that the FTC investigated months before the FCC did prior to 2015. That, is, that was the FTC acting as an active cop on the beat. And so going forward, that's exactly the same framework we're going to have. Consumers are going to be protected, again, through transparency and through at the FCC and Consumer Protection Authority at the FTC. So I feel like th this question and these sort of questions in general sort of get at this idea. We keep hearing about um, fast track or fast lane of the internet. And some ISPs have said that that is something that they'd like to pursue even after um, the uh, the refill. So where, so what, what, what is that? And how does that kind of fit into this? Sure, so that involves an issue that is commonly called paid prioritization. So a content company would do a deal with an internet service provider in which you'd say in exchange for money, we will deliver your traffic faster or with certain uh, service guarantees, quality of service, QoS and the like. So one could conceive both pro-competitive and anti-competitive uh, paid prioritization arrangements. You can think of some pro-competitive arrangements. If you're a telehealth startup, for example, and you want to prioritize 
uh, you know, critical health information, it might be worth it to you to be able to distinguish yourself in the marketplace to guarantee the quicker, uh, guaranteed delivery of that traffic. Quicker. On the other hand, we don't want to see any competitive arrangements that essentially work to squelch uh, startup activity. That again is a question for antitrust. I mean, that's a question for the Federal Trade Commission to evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis. To have a flat ban at the FCC, which the prior rules did, is essentially saying for all time, for every single arrangement that could ever happen, we determine that it's per se any competitive. We're going to forget about any potential consumer benefits. We will decide in 2015 that for the rest of the time you can't do that. And that just seems to be a very heavy-handed approach. It certainly uh, raises the barrier for small businesses or startups starting to get into it business. Absolutely. And the other thing that it obscures is the fact that I think you know, a lot of these arrangements exist in the internet economy today. For example, what if I were to tell you that an internet service provider that everybody knows has done deals with a number of different publishers of uh, news. And they say, okay, we will deliver your traffic much quicker on <laughs> mobile exactly devices. Who you're talking about. <laughs> we'll deliver your traffic much quicker on mobile devices than it would otherwise uh, be delivered. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually exists, except it's done by Google, and it's called Accelerated Mobile Pages. That delivers your traffic very quickly. Moreover, when you actually click on some of these AMP links, you don't get the link to the original publisher, you get right. a link to Google. So, is that any competitive or pro-competitive? I mean, I think some of the critics would say, well, it's any competitive when done by an internet service provider, but not done when, not, not any competitive when it's done by Google. It just, I'm looking for some intellectual consistency here, and that can only be found, I think, through rigorous application of Federal Trade Commission principles. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and we're almost out of time, but before we go, okay. uh, I'd like to ask everyone at the end of one of these, what in one or two sentences do you want people to take out of this discussion we've had here tonight? I think that uh, the passion and uh, the heat that has been generated by this issue obscures what I think is actually a fair amount of common ground, that all of us favor a free and open internet. A free and open internet is what we've traditionally had. A free and open internet is what has allowed startups to transform businesses into very successful globally known companies. It's what has allowed network investment to increase. And ultimately, it is what allows everybody in America to succeed. And so our hope is that our regulatory framework is one that over time, in response to the uh, gentleman's question, will be proven uh, you know, to keep that tradition of the free and open internet and to help close the digital divide, which is ultimately, I think, what consumers are really worried about, you're getting more access and competition. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to Commissioner Pai for coming out and answering our questions. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's great. Thank you.